My name is uh, Christopher Sanders. I'm a grad student here at SJSU in Com Studies. Analytics lead on the social media team. Uh, this is a mentor of mine. He's the social media team originator. SJSU alum, longtime instructor and recent retiree. Uh, most friends get to call him TC. It's Dr. Ted Koopman. Ted, how are you today? <laughs> Not too bad. How about yourself? Just excited to finally have a face-to-face with you. Very amped to meet your wife for the first time in a face-to-face. After taking, I guess, it was like six classes total from the two of you. (laughs) So the first thing we'll get into, Ted, I've been dying to ask you this whole time. Are you a Theodore? No, actually, uh, I am just a straight-up Ted. My father's name was Theodore, and when I was born, they weren't expecting a boy, and so they didn't have a name picked out. And so that was a clutch decision at the hospital to name me Ted. So just Ted, that's it. Not Teddy either? <laughs> uh, previously by some. I'll answer, you know, I'll answer almost any, I mean, my, I'm like, I'll answer almost anything, right? So. <laughs> okay. So uh, I know a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up, but just a tad bit. So can you let everyone else know about your pre-collegiate life? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Fresno, California, but escaped. Uh, It's a good place to be from. And it was, yeah, wild times there. I mean, all the the terrible police practices that, you know, that have since become mostly outlawed, all were originated in Fresno, you know. Um, So, uh, yeah, so I got my uh, bachelor's degree in theater arts from Fresno State, some of which I remember. And then I moved to Santa Cruz, California, and I spent about 15 years working in restaurants and catering and things like that, as well as tree work. I painted houses. I had my own auto detailing (laughs) business and, um, you know, a bunch of other things. And then actually was chasing a girl up to Humboldt State and ran into a mentor of mine, Gary Melton, who was running kind of the broadcasting program up there and uh, worked on the FM station. They have a, 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 an NPR, uh, KHSU, and, and had a show on that station for a while. Then he convinced me that I should be an academic. And so I came back down, moved back down to Santa Cruz in like the middle of the recession. It's like 1990, right? So it's just mm-hmm. like the economy, mm-hmm. the earthquake has just happened. Everything's trash. The economy's in the toilet. Always the best Actually, time to move to the Bay Area. Uh, well, <laughs> you, you got no money. Right, it doesn't like, matter. It's like you got right, no money. There's no money. And right so, after that, if you can catch that upswing, man, you're living good. Yeah. Well, the uh, and, and actually, what I did is is um, the only job I could get was washing cars in the back of a dealership, and then I there was a an opening for a, a car sales that I took, and so I suffered through selling cars, Volvos and minivans and Jeeps and stuff like that <laughs> for three years. Um, to save up enough money for getting my master's in mass communication at San Jose State. So I was in the mass comm journalism program there. Had a real bad experience with academe at that point. Actually, that's when I took my, I, I met Stephanie because that was the, it was, she taught one class. Did she tell you that story? I had one class that oh, semester yeah. and I took her interviewing class and that's where we met. I was the advisor in mass comm was having a meeting with Stephanie, who was the advisor in Calm, and trash-talked me to Stephanie. And so I, I heard all about that, of course. And then, but at that time, I was, you know, I, I got involved in the micro-radio movement, which was uh, media democracy broadly in the 1990s. And 
what it was is anarchists were starting these unlicensed low power FM stations to try to organize people. The feds didn't like that very much. And so I got, that's where I did my thesis on, which they said would go nowhere. But, uh, and so I got out of uh, being, at the time I was also uh, studying and teaching um, Penchaksilat, which is an Indonesian martial art and then like doing catering and working in restaurants and stuff like that. And so I was, I got involved in that movement and became like a movement or it's a national movement. And I mean, at the time, this is like bleeding edge, early internet, listserv, having a website, things like that. Search, internet search did not exist. So you had to have these indexing sites that people would know where that indexing site was so they could get links to where all the other sites were because there was no way to find out where anything was, right? And so the FBI didn't even have compute internet enabled computers at that point. So there was a heyday there as far as the anarchists were concerned in terms of organizing. And so it was basically a 10 year battle to try to get um, low power FM licensed. And we, we, you know, anything like that, we mostly won, you know, because there's like, you know, several thousand, 10, 50 watt FM radio stations, community radio stations all across the country. Um, and so that's what I did in the 1990s. And I took my experience with that and what I did my um, thesis on. And I got a, an article published in the top journal of my field, which is um, Journal of Broadcasting and Electronic Media. And so that set me up to apply for PhD program uh, around the country, because when you apply to PhD programs, you apply everywhere. But at that point, I was older. I got a bunch of several offers that I decided to go to the University of Washington, you know, in Seattle. The other main offer I got was actually a Park Fellowship at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill which was pretty high wattage. But what they did is that they flew everybody in. They put you in a room with the person you're competing with because there's like, you know, there's 16 people there and eight <laughs> slots. And then they put you through this like grilling thing. And they came, they, they bring me in for this interview and uh, they start grilling me on my GRE scores. What the hell is that? And of course, I'm not a 20 something. I'm like a 30, you know, going on 40 something and have been an activist and all that stuff. And I'm not, you know, I'm not taking shit off of anybody. You know, they, tre- like, they treated you like it was a pickup basketball game. They said, well, it was, play, it was play for pretty, your fellowship. They were pulling some, shit, you know, some really basic shit. I'm like, I don't want to be here. And they gave me an offer. They offered me a fellowship and I refused it. And I would like bump into people there like, you're Ted Koopman, huh? You review that stuff. Like, because, you know, your faculty are, that's why I didn't want to go there. Yeah. And so I went to the University of Washington and that was a challenge because of course, again, you're an older student and a lot of the faculty are like my age. And at the time there was a hundred graduate students in that program, three men, it was all women. And so that was a like well, that was a whole political experience and and basically one thing that I've discovered is that any bit of wisdom can be summed up in that you know I've done a lot of questionable things in my life that in a wide spectrum of what is questionable, <laughs> but what I regret is not what I've done but what I didn't do, mm. not speaking up, not doing the right thing, not speaking truth right, and so I did that. And that had its consequences. And I won't get into all that, the, the gory details of that, right? But then again, I came out of that program in 2007. We're right in the middle of the recession, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. and then uh, Stephanie, they, uh, Stephanie got pulled back into, after being basically sent into exile, 
Um, they pulled her back in to run the department as everything was falling apart during the recession. And then I kind of uh, skated. Another mentor I had who was uh, the chair of RTVF brought me in to teach a couple of classes for them. And then I got a couple of classes in comm. And then eventually I transferred full-time to comm because if you are part-time in one department and then part-time in another department at San Jose State, that does not equal full-time. You're still part-time. So the, you have to the be lovely full-time. In bureaucracy one, of college, yeah. right? <laughs> and so then I, I moved into, um, you know, being full-time in comm. So that's the story of that. A uh, better question I have is, uh, What's your FBI profile look like? I don't know. I haven't <laughs> asked. I haven't asked. Although I got to tell you, man. Okay. Okay. This is a funny story. So I've got, I'm in the middle of this. This is like the probably uh, maybe 97. Um, and uh, we're like in the thick of it. And the thing is when you, if you're broadcasting illegally with a little transmitter, whatever, what they do is they issue an arrest warrant against your transmitter piece of equipment, right? Um, which because what it keeps it from being criminal law, it makes it administrative law, which you have no rights. Um, and so uh, what happens is that when they go to take your radio station down, they bring in federal marshals, like with assault weapons and like full intrusion gear. I mean, it's really, it's pretty crazy, pretty intense. <laughs> you got I mean, raided? Like, Whoa! You know, they come in, it's like, great. You spent how many, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on this exercise? Actually, what happened is that they, uh, they came in and they did that at Free Radio Santa Cruz. And then they didn't notify the cops ahead of time. And then the cops in Santa Cruz are like, you know, look, we beat up our own anarchists. We don't appreciate the feds coming in and beating up on our anarchists because they're ours. They didn't provide them any security and they cut all the tires for all the, F, for all the, the, the federal marshals, right? And so they had to bring in tow trucks to have them all towed away. And we're talking to seize like, you know, $2,000 maybe versus with this handmade bespoke broadcasting equipment. You know, they're back on the air in a week. But anyway, so I'm at, I'm at the place I'm renting and I'm out there doing yard work and a couple of friends of mine had given my name to the Mormons, right? That I wanted to talk to them. And so these two guys walk up, clean cut, three piece suits, very white. And they walk up, they go, are you Ted Koopa? And I'm like, oh, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. I tried to think of like, what have I done recently? And it's like, oh, we're, and, and then I saw the name tag and I literally just like almost collapsed. I'm like, oh, thank God, you're Mormons. Oh my God. And they're like, what? And they're like, and I told, explained what probably happened. They go, that's not very nice. And I said, I don't think that's very nice either. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what I, I don't know what my 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 federal profile is uh, considering all that the the what got burned up on the um, on the internet doing organizing. But we did w- one thing is that it we prove of concept because anything you see in media now as far as um, interactive media sites you know where you can like anybody can upload stuff and there's conversation stuff like that. That got pioneered, file sharing, 1997. That got all pioneered by the anarchists in the free media movement, a media democracy movement, you know, sharing files between radio stations and all that kind of stuff. So it was very much bleeding edge. And we got to, we proved that you could deliberate and you could get things done in a digital environment. I walked into my very first class in graduate school and the guy was like the big, you know, he was like a major, he was big on jury deliberation. And we started this class. It was literally the first day of class. And he said, he's like, well, you, you have to be 
in person. You cannot effectively deliberate in a, via email or listserv in a digital environment. And I'm like raising my hand. I'm like, you're wrong. And everyone's like, what? You just told the professor that he's wrong. I'm like, I've been doing this for like 10 years. And I happen to know we forged a national movement. I put together a joint statement on, on micro radio because we had like, you know, libertarian right churches and anarchists. And we had to come up with, with something that we could give the FCC. And I wrangled that agreement and we deliberated it and we came up with it and that went to the FCC and we did that on a shitty listserv nationally. There are people all over the country, you know? And so, and that was, that was a major, that was a major achievement for us and a proof of concept. And it really is, it's kind of interesting because everyone's talking about social media and it's like, Oh wow, it's this whole new thing and organizing online. And we're all like, you know, whatever. (laughs) And then, uh, of course, what happened is 9-11 happened because the the, um, global justice movement and the big protests in Seattle and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and we were really rolling. And then 9-11 happened. And just like what always happens, they didn't go after the Islam. They didn't go after the terrorists. They came after the leftists. And they came at us hard. And so we all scattered, basically. We're like, oh, my God, the jig is up. Here come the feds, because they could do basically almost anything at that point with the Patriot Act. Exactly. And so a bunch of us went to graduate school. So that's that's what happened. That's that's what happened in the 60s as well. It's the exact same thing that happened in the 1960s. Crackdown came in the 70s. All the activists went to graduate school. So. Yeah. And and after that happened, uh, now they come after academia. Thanks a lot. Academia is in the process of susceptible of killing itself anyway so. <laughs> all right ted so uh i don't think it's a shocker to anyone but you've lived uh the dream of many college students oh god you uh, wound up marrying one of your professors <laughs> i earned my a in that class actually <laughs> and then i just we, we started hanging out later and so yeah yeah i've heard i've heard the story (laughs) but um i couldn't believe she was interested in me i'm like what really what yeah yeah she told me she said um one of his one of your friends had to basically hit you upside the head and say she likes you dummy i'm like oh wow what she wants me to go to visit her brother in santa barbara and i don't know what that means he's like you're an idiot it's obvious what she, you know, come on, dude. Um, I'm like, oh, yeah. so, no, there was never too bright in that regard. Yeah. Hey, you can't have all the gifts, right? Yeah, very few. So um, I'm trying. So how was it like uh, basically having a career for the last decade, 15 years or so uh, with your wife and, and publishing with her and, and, you know, building up this uh, base of academia that you guys both have together? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's 24-7. And for a long time, I was working for her. She was department chair and I was a faculty yeah. member. And so everything had to like go through the dean or anything that happened. You, hey, you already worked for her anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, so we won't get into that, right? But the, the, the thing is, is like, she's, she's the oldest, right? She's firstborn. And I'm the youngest in my family by a long shot. And it's funny because our best friends are also the oldest and the youngest as well. And birth order matters. It does matter in terms of your temperament because it's the youngest. You have to survival dictates. You have to be the observer. So you watch what your siblings are doing. Then you're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. That obviously did not work. And you kind of keep a low profile. 
but uh but yeah it really um i mean it was it was it could be really challenging at times because uh, her father was an academic i mean i was a first i'm a first generation college student and so but her family you know her father was a was a big time academic and and doing all that stuff and so it was you know it, it i learned a lot you know i learned a lot um doing stuff with stephanie we were able to get quite a bit done, which is really what it comes down to. I mean, that's the one, you know, some people just go through the motions, but I like getting stuff. That's as an activist, I'm all about deliverables. I'm like, at the end of the day, you live in a physical world. You got to make decisions based on, because my background is in, originally was in policy, media law and policy, right? And so all policy is going to fail to some extent, but you just basically, you get to a point to where you have to act. And that's the problem with academia is with academics, you very rarely get to the, the point where you have to act. It's talking about thinking, about theorizing, about maybe doing something. And so I'm wanting to do stuff. And so that was kind of the main motivation and her early entry into um, online teaching and then building that up, building up that capacity. I mean, I literally gave talks to the faculty and this is like, this is post 2007 that they were just amazed at students turning in work electronically instead of on paper. I mean, how's that? I'm like, I'm like, okay, all right. Actually, there's a lot of affordances to that as opposed to the physical paper. And, uh, you know, it's like being an instructor is not handing out paper syllabi at the beginning of the semester. It's not like your primary, having a chalkboard. We had faculty who fought to keep chalkboards versus whiteboards in some of the classes because they were like big on the chalk thing. So it's really, I mean, academics are always like way behind the curve when it comes to that. Is, is, that why I, is that why I still use my CD player in the car? Is it because I'm having yeah, an academic well, mindset? I mean, you're invested in the platform, right? You got a bunch of CDs. I, I still got a ton of DVDs I haven't even done because I've got Macs. I'm like, I won't, I won't run the DVD. So uh, you're invested. Why paper books, right? So, um, but no, so it was, it's something that really, it gave me a lot of perspective. I got to meet, she really introduced, she really networked me and I got to introduce, got to be introduced to a lot of people and a lot of really, really interesting, smart people all over the country. And that was cool. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, we, we were able to work on some stuff, you know, some different articles and then we serve, you know, serving in um, different academic organizations uh, because I was on the executive, um, executive board of the uh, Association of Internet Researchers to as a graduate student representative and then as a as an at at large representative as well and then we were involved with the american communication association which actually had one of the first online open access journals and just she was a journal editor and then i was on the i was on the executive board there got a firsthand experience in in academic politics from some people who are very skilled and very very ruthless right so I'm like, wow, that's, uh, and I'm kind of, a, the thing is, I'm kind of, when it comes to, because it's all that is text-based online for listserv. And I, I am now fully versed in the dark arts of listserv combat, as far as how that works. Um, and that was a hard, that was hard lesson work. I'm like, holy, holy shit, I can't even believe that just happened. Um, but the joke about academia is never have so few fought hard over so little. Right. Mm, mm, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so to continue on the topic of publishing, uh, you've had a lot of work published in, uh, I would say, a relatively short amount of time, considering how, you know, how your 
time frame was from when you got your master's to your doctorate degree till now, uh, I would say you've been very active, a lot of tangibles as you were pointing to that you have. Um, so what advice would you give to current students and trying to get published? Well, I was the, the environment, the publishing environment was different and has become different as, you know, they become less Luddite, you know, in terms of um, getting published in a journal and going through the process. I mean, it took me, the, it generally takes, you're going to publish something in most journals, things that get published are historical because the, the data and everything was collected is probably two years out of date minimum because it takes so long to get through the peer review process. So I was lucky I got some, I got those publications with just my master's and that, that, that got me a lot of funding and opportunities as a graduate student. So the PhD program and then getting things published. And it really is a matter of knowing, knowing your journals and what they are, you know, where they are in the hierarchy because not all journals are created equal. I was also lucky for my, for my um, dissertation, I got publication in critical studies and media communication, which is the other top journal in media for nice. calm. And that is like a 9% acceptance rate. And that was really fortunate. But the thing is, a lot of it is just, you know, latest, greatest, biggest, best, you know, the sex value, right? It has a lot of sense. Like, Ooh, very sexy. This is a new thing. You know? And so people always <laughs> pile into it because they want to be in the latest thing. Right. My big advice is that you should be, if you want to get into a PhD program, right you should have some publications in the works, right? Which means that you need to be at any one time, if you're serious about it, you should be in multiple stages. You should be in the conceptual stage of what you're going to be looking at next, right? What you're going to be studying next, how are you going to go about it? Then you should be collecting data and be in the active investigative phase. And you should be in the writing phase and or writing and revision phase at the same time. You should always have something coming up, something in the works, something that you're writing up and or something that you're, um, uh, you know, that you're working on publication because the revise and resubmit process goes on and on. You know, they'll mm -hmm. send you back stuff, then you have to rewrite it, and then you have to send it to them, and then they send it back to you. And I mean, you could have like multiple rounds of that easily. And so that's the biggest advice, right? Still got a landline there, Ted, I see. Yeah. <laughs> it's a package trust, deal, right? <laughs> I was going to say you don't trust the towers or what? <laughs> well, it, you know, I'm, I like to uh, diversification in technology. Just like everyone is into like having everything networked together. But the problem is if you have everything networked together, you have one point of failure, right? Yeah. If it gets yeah. into your system, it destroys everything. So the idea yeah. that I've got my, my iPad, my you know, the, the, the phone and then the computer and they are tenuously like the calendars are synced, but that's just about it for me. And the landline is, uh, just kind of came with the package on the cable. So. <laughs> you said throw it on there. I got another $10 a well, month. Well, it gives me a local area code too. So <laughs> yeah, give me yeah, true. Code, yeah. So we're going to talk about something sadder now. Uh, I definitely felt a certain way reading your academic narrative uh, when you got to the part about the social media team because you gave me my first job on the social media team and then you weren't leading the social media team anymore, which was a lovely series of emails that we went through together. 
Um, And that was my first big experience with the bureaucracy involved with uh, universities and instructors and that side of it. You know, I dealt with the student side enough with all the different offices and dealing with their nonsense, but I never saw it on the professor side. Yeah, they hate you as much as they hate us, basically. They hate hate everybody. We are inconvenient. (laughs) Students are inconvenient. Faculty are inconvenient to administration and staff. But two primary things, the problem with it is that there is a matter of uh, the way power is articulated, that there are no, there's no system of accountability. And that's our primary problem writ large is the lack of accountability, and especially within academia, is that there are consequences for students, right? And there are consequences for faculty of a different sort, but there's no consequences for administration or staff. And so you really need somebody. The point of a hierarchy is that you have somebody who could step in to referee, to be like, this is, you stepped over the line. But the thing is expediency, you know, rules. And so what happened, the, the academic political situation in the department and the factionalism is partially driven by uh, epistemological considerations, right? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is that there is a, people have different world worldviews, right? As far as how things happen um, and what the focus should be. And generally speaking, some departments are ideologically rigid. You see that a lot in, in poli-sci is that there's a particular, yeah. or actually, yeah. uh, actually economics. Economics is really uh. like, you know, blood sport. There are factions and anthropology can be that way too, between cultural and physical anthropology. And so those are, the, you know, some departments, people work well together. Other departments, they don't. Unfortunately, people who uh, subscribe to critical theory or cultural studies and its offshoots it's not, it's not the biggest subject here at uh, San Jose State. It's not exactly our uh, focal point. Well, it, the thing is, it, it is the total focal point of the comm department currently because people are that critical, cultural, um, and that, that brings up a certain worldview is that, you know, race has to be central, race, gender, class has to be central in everything, and that it is magically a, it is a, it is a sub-discipline, it is a theory it is an epistemological viewpoint, and you get to the point to where people are wedded to it in a quasi-religious sense. So the thing is, if you are not a believer, then that is something that is fundamentally wrong with you as far as your perspective. And Stephanie might have mentioned the fact that, you know, as a, as a woman in academe, if she doesn't take an explicitly feminist perspective on everything, that scene is problematic. It would be like for an African American, it's like, you know, it's like, well, how come you're an, Af- you're an African American, you know, academic, why aren't you looking at issues of race and, you know, the African American experience? Like, I don't know, because I'm a, a chemist. I don't know. You know, you know what am I doing? I had, you know, it's that expectation. And it's like, it's so funny. It's like, that's so weirdly racist, right? Um, that, you know, so, people would come up to you with that, right? That's so weird that you had that experience with the department and on the student side, I feel like it's the complete opposite. Like in grad school, I, I can't, there's no critical cultural anything class. There's no critical race class. I might not take one during my entire time as a grad student yeah. there, here. And, well, it's because and, even in un, and even in undergrad, when we talk about real diversity, we are diverse in a sense, but I think there's one non-white male uh, a lecturer or 
I think there's a couple lecturers, but there's only one faculty member that's a non-white male. Um, I think it's Felipe Gomez, if I'm not mistaken. And other than that, I mean, we do have diversity in women, but you know, for some, for a uh, epistemological perspective that says critical race is a certain thing, there sure isn't uh, as much representation here as they uh, are preaching on your side. Well, because it's the hypocrisy of it, right? It's not the thing; is they're not. It's it's it doesn't. I mean, that's the show. You have performance studies. It's a performance, right? They're performing it. And it's very convenient, but like in my case, right, is that at the central of this is, is power analysis, right? Um, so you have to do a power analysis. And so I got dumped on with this idea that I am somehow in, inherently, I've got, I'm in a position of power where I have no power in that department. And so that was, a, that was a, an extreme exercise of unbridled, exercise of power, uh, you know, against me as someone who is really has no, as a lecturer, has no standing in power in the department and is completely at the at the mercy. I mean, the contract, the union contract protects me to a certain degree, but obviously not very much. Um, just to go back recently, the problem with, especially males of, uh, of people of color in academia is a pipeline problem. And the thing yeah. is that Philippe, yeah. uh, everybody who, the only person in our department, the, there's only two people in our department who've been in the department since I've been there that are actually real live, we consider to be minority population, right? And Marquita Bird is one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Rona Halalani, even though she's, of course, because you have to be 100% Hawaiian in order to be really Hawaiian, <laughs> not really Hawaiian, you know, how the, you know, and then it's a one drop rule on the other side, I don't know. But anyway, they're all imports. Nikki is not an American, right? She wasn't, you know, she's she's like an an African who is in America right now, not an hey, American. Hey, 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 I call them African-Americans. I prefer black. <laughs> well, the real, I mean, that's the whole thing. If you're Jamaican, <laughs> Stephanie's brother is like, you know, he's Jamaican. And so it's like, he's like, uh, we know a lot of Haitians too. And they're like, no, 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 that is not us. So black is, you know, black is the preferred, but. Um, yeah, but, she's an African-American. <laughs> yeah, no, it's. Oh, uh, actually, just just as a quick aside, I knew somebody in graduate school, Patty Jean Hooper, Nate, uh, army brat, right? She was actually born at a military installation in Africa and then got transferred to Alabama <laughs> and went into the school talking with this African-American woman who was at the school talking about her and, you know, asking her a bunch of questions. And she said, she, of course, she said that she goes, oh, I'm an African-American. She's like really white. I mean, like white, white. I mean, even whiter than this. She goes like, I'm an African-American. And the woman kind of stepped back and be like, it's like, you know, girl, that is no. She goes, well, I was born in Africa and I'm an American. How come I'm not an African-American, right? And she had to like, get to explain. I mean, you're like nine, right? She had to get that explained. Um, but the, the point is, is that what you do, Priya, Luis Felipe, uh, Gal, uh, they're four nationals right? They are, they might be American citizens now, but they were, when they were hired, they were foreign nationals. They are elites as a majority group in their respective countries. They come in, but they count, right, as being not white. And so that brings up your diversity quotient. Doesn't do very much for the actual minority population that is here. And of course, as far as the black population is concerned, you have a K through 12 problem. And so yeah. there's no pipeline. I mean, ultimately that is the problem. But 
What it does do for those of you who do get into the pipeline is that it, I had somebody, so I went to this conference one time and a woman was presenting. She's a black uh, disabled. She's, you know, in a, permanently in a wheelchair, lesbian, right? And her, her talk was the power of the token, right? And I've, I, know, I also know some Native American scholars as well. And it's really conflicting, right? It's like, well, I get a lot of disadvantages for this. So why wouldn't I go ahead and leverage that status yeah. to get yeah. what I want? Because it's all, you know, it's, it's full contact out there. And so why wouldn't you do that, right? So there is some advantages, but like a friend of mine, Maria Garrido, who's actually a Mexican national, when she was in my graduate program, they were telling her, he's like, you know, female minority hire, you're gonna be, you're gonna be fine. And she's like, I'm not a minority. Don't call me a minority. I'm from Mexico. I'm a Mexican. Therefore, <laughs> I am not a minority because we're all Mexicans in Mexico, right? And, the, she's, and you're not there it, anymore. Yeah, she used to be so pissed off. She used to, used to piss her off. And I mean, that's the complexity of it, which unfortunately, uh. by the time it gets filtered down into academic politics, the, the nuances kind of, which is, which is why I like the conversations that you and I have and Marquita and I have as well. Or with um, Federico Verona, but he's mm. from Spain, right? So he's not, you know, he's, you know, Hispanic in that sense, but, you know, he's actually from, literally from Spain. Com completely um, different. Yeah, no, I, you have, a, you have yeah. completely, it's not, that's not the experience. That is not the experience that, you know, Marquita versus Nikki, right? Versus you. Yeah. That is a different, you know, planetary, that's a different planet they're coming from. But the nuance gets lost, and and so, but just kind of running back, the idea of uh, the critical cultural perspective, it's just the idea of the, of uh, epistemological purity in terms of how you're approaching um, reality and scholarship, or the way classes should be taught, you know. And it's amazing that you know, because that's kind of a lefty thing when you go back to like you know Stuart Hall, like the the origins of it all. Oh yeah, it was very anti-colonial. It was very much you know about emancipatory, but it really has been weaponized, and people will use it what I call to woke wash stuff, which is like they're taking <laughs> something and then they're like they're gonna give it that glaze. So that means that if you go be like you know, well I don't want to do that or I don't see a rationale, then you're a racist, right? Or you're unwoke or other problems with you. And I just don't find that very collegial or productive. And if you're on the out, the thing is they outgroup you, right? And with, within the department, within academe broadly, but also within departments, you have factionalism, right? Yeah. And so people, it becomes very clear who's in and who is out. And the people who are in get the benefits of that. And the people that are out get fucked. And, you know, <laughs> I got... The thing is, is that they were willing, they were willing to, to discipline me, right? They were willing to destroy that program. You know, they and were doing, they were, they hey, stepped you know, in no, and they, they, that destroyed my career. When they, when they pulled that move, that destroyed my career because I had a whole program of research that was associated with that. So. And uh, in, a, in a ton of ways, they have uh, done their best to do it. Without they, making it look like it, with the sleight of hand. Death. There was no subtlety there at all. I mean, honestly, it's, I, I just don't, you know, they, they never had, I couldn't get them interested in the social media team at all. The entire development of the social media team, Stephanie helped launch that. And then they deposed yeah. her and they put in Deanna. And I mean, this is like, you know, uh, 
faculty that are now teaching online when the first idea of teaching online they came on they've actually published they deanna and andy wood have a published piece saying that you cannot teach online it's not real <laughs> pedagogy it's not real teaching right and it's like over it was always over my dead body and so there's all this pushback on that and then not really seeing the value of the internet um or digital media or anything like that or social media and and trying to do anything and having to like fight just to get you know just to get the space in order to develop that and getting no help and getting no funding on it at all and then to kind of organically build that up mostly through the work of students the thing is i was there as as the as the anchor but all the work in the social media team everything that happened to develop that up was almost exclusively students and that is what was hurtful to me is that so many students had put so much work sincere hard work for nothing i mean you, well you know how instrument you get as a student you have to be instrumental and we're talking like one unit and they're like putting in like massive hours and 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 on the management team and developing training and then developing you know uh, organizational management structure strategic plan really looking at what's going on in the industry which is what i brought it's like look you have to really put this in context what are social media companies doing what are companies that use social media doing and then telling them it's like they don't know what they're doing so don't there's no pressure there this is their, <laughs> this is the idea that they're kind of working in there and then you have yeah. to look at okay what's problematic about this what works how are we doing this what's the proper way to push media through different channels right facebook is not twitter is not instagram you know and it's not tumblr it's not you know vine back in the day or whatever and how do you do that and so a lot of that on the ground expertise on social media is by students who actually are involved with it right and really know deeply about social media and have learned the hard for the most especially in the early days learned the hard way in 2009 when i asked my students in my media class how they what were their settings or security settings on facebook and the rationale for them two-thirds did not even know their security settings on wow facebook. no and i mean that was a though that generation just got screwed as far hey, as hey, hey, all the stuff that generation well, I, the thing is, it's all out there, right? It's all out there. I gotta um, go find my old MySpace now. It's too late. It's too late. That sh that train has sailed. But yeah, so I mean, and that's that. That is what really grieved me is that this was something trying to get them to accept students as partners in a collaborative process for learning and to engage them in a non-coercive way, right? Because it's amazing how fast people that are supposedly so left woke, you know, critical cultural thing, they'll go to coercion like, you know, like that, you know, if they can force it, if they can discipline, if they can punish you. And what happened to me is that we went through this whole, this whole like crazy thing. And I was trying to explain to them, I'm like, you just can't, anybody can't run this team. You need to have the training and the background and the research and, and to know what's going on broadly to run the team which they didn't believe because it's a conceit that what they do is complex but what you do a trained monkey could do right they don't care yeah, yeah. and so even at that point and uh matt spangler stepping in because he wanted the class off and he wanted to run it 
And I'm like, I've got enough students involved in this because I had 50 students at the time because I built a team from like nine students to 50 students is that he was like, I don't care. I just want the class off. And I'm like, that's fine. I don't need the credit. I don't need the, I don't need the class off. I've got enough students to, to, to buy me out for it, right? And then we both went to Deanna Fassett, the chair at the time, with that deal. And she said, no, knowing that that would destroy it, not caring. And basically because we'd had some conflicts between her and Stephanie and I in the past, some crazy stuff, the Dean, when she was, when Deanna was getting reelected to be chair, you know, we went to the Dean, you know, we, we gave our input and mm -hmm. we're seriously concerned because she, during her entire time there, she never hired a lecturer that did not come out of the master's program that she was the graduate coordinator for, right? She never, no, not one. And so we were, she wasn't bringing on, like I've got a PhD, but I'm a lecturer, not bringing on any PhD lectures. And we're like, that's concerning to us. I still think that Walt just basically told her that we were really concerned about that because Deanna's husband emailed Stephanie and I to tell us what terrible people we were. And so we had to file a grievance and there's this whole oh, thing man. that went on. Yeah. And so at the tail end, that was taking me out was completely, there's no justification other than personal vindictiveness. So, and that's what the thing is. And it, and it flew. None of my colleagues, people that I'd known, I mean, I'd been there. I was talking to Andy Wood at NCA when he was applying for his job there. I remember Anne-Marie Todd's first interview when she showed up to interview to do her job talk. I've known all those faculty members for, for years, sometimes even over decades, right? And then some faculty that, you know, were lecturers and now they're faculty members or whatever. And in that environment, when that was going down, objectively, obviously, up and wrong, not one, not one backed my action, right? to protect me or to say that this is wrong. Not a single faculty member stood up. Tenure track faculty member. Wow. You know, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I'm like, okay. I'm like, that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I retired, right? You know, yeah. I was just like, I wasn't on track to do it. The opportunity came up, but I was already like done. I'm like, I can't even, you know, what am I doing? Uh, you're just making me, you're making my job harder. I'm trying to teach my classes. I was trying to do this other thing and now you know, I got, and that's the nature of it, right? Mm -hmm. That is, you would, I mean, because something like that generally wouldn't happen in the private sector because there are protections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in academe, no. And so, um, yeah, so that's the reality of what, that's the reality of what happened. And that's what I'm signing up for, huh? <laughs> you have to go in. The thing is, is that the graduate school is designed to break you. It's designed to break you and to have you put up with a lot of bullshit, jump through a lot of flaming hoops, get you used to abysmally low pay and no respect. So you're ready to be a faculty member. And then it's just the luck of the draw. There's a lot of really great departments. I mean, even my old department in MassCom, when Bob Rucker, who was actually on my committee, he took over as chair, it changed that department. Under Stephanie, it really changed the department as well because she was all about, you know, supporting lectures and then people making decisions. She made decisions based on what's best for students. And that's why they deposed her because that's what she was doing. 
you know, it was students first because that was what you're supposed to be. And faculty wanted faculty first, right? They don't mm -hmm. look at what the, they don't look at demand for, look at who they've hired. It's not based on demand. Do you see an overwhelming demand in the department for, I don't know, critical health communication or maybe performance studies? It's non-existent, <laughs> right? It's not. We, okay, this is the thing is, I was, I'm a lecturer. I am the only, we're in the middle of Silicon Valley and I'm the only digital media, media person on the faculty. I was the only one. And for years, I'm like, you've got to hire faculty in this because if I go, you've got nothing. Yeah. So what happened? I leave. That's it. You know, some people can dabble in it, you know, but as far as someone who's like, this is my area, I do, I publish, I do research, I'm involved in the academic community on it. I've got the experience. I teach the classes. We got nothing right? Because they didn't want to, because that's, I don't, because they wanted to chase performance studies because that was like the latest, greatest thing. And they, uh, and they, they really weren't interested in, you know, in where student demand was. There's no student. I mean, there's a ton of demand for media, social media in the department. Yeah. And, and um, the, but we the got demand nothing. for, for performance studies is in performance studies. There's <laughs> No. There's a whole, there's a whole other department for that. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not even, uh, yeah, go to theater arts. I mean, that's always yeah. been my attitude. I'm like, that's fine. Respect, but go to theater arts. Cause I was in theater arts, radio, television, film, theater. Right. So yeah. it's like, that's not, but they just call it something else. And there, you can do a lot of good work in performance studies. If you're, if you're serious and social scientific, but that is a very small percentage. Um, David Terry, who used to be in the department, is that kind of performance studies. He's a performance. He's not a playwright, which is what Spangler is. He was, <laughs> he, uh, David Terry was a scholar. He did research. He collected data. Andavir's, is it Andavir's Smith? You know what I'm talking about? She wrote, she did those, all those interviews around the rebellion, 1990 LA riots rebellion. And she went okay. and she talked to a bunch of people and then it became like a performance piece for her. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's serious, serious um, um, anthropology, um, you know, ethnography stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. But why would you call it performance studies when you, exactly. you know, it's like you're going to get have up other, and like, We have other fields for that. You're going to do an interpretive <laughs> reading of it. It's like- Look, We and, have and, journalism, and, mass media. <laughs> well, it's the idea of, the thing is a voice, right? As an academic, you get a lot of voice, but this whole focus on the voice of the academic, that's not my job. My job is to give voice to the people that are in that I'm studying that are within that yeah. milieu to be like, to give them the voice. And I've done my own autoethnography stuff. I've got some book chapters that was all about my role as an academic in a social movement and mm -hmm. how that rolled out. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's autoethnography in a lot of ways, but you know, I wouldn't call myself an autoethnographer. And I think most autoethnography is, they're novelists. I mean, there's very, again, yeah, it's all yeah. about them. And so even yeah. as, even to the point of when I was writing for what I did in the, in the micro radio movement, the media democracy movement, I was writing about my experience in the movement, but it was about the movement. The point was to explain the process and how I interfaced with that movement. And it was not about my personal feelings or anything like that. You know, yeah. I don't, you know, that's not, I got plenty of privilege. I got plenty of privilege. I don't, you know, that's not what I should be focusing on. So uh, that's one of the toughest things in uh, sociology uh, is 
dealing with your own ethnography, your autoethnography, and dealing with the contrast of either not writing about it at all, so you have less bias toward whatever you're writing about, or on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, trying to check your own bias at the door. Um, Impossible. I read a lot, of, I, I, I read a lot from uh, Hurston um, about that type of thing and her, her quote-unquote struggles with it if you will. Yeah. Um, you just have to own, I mean, you're the sum total of your experience, right? I'm not yeah. going to, I will never yeah. know what your experience is and you will never know, even though, you know, white male culture is like dominant in the United States, you mm -hmm. know, you don't know anything about me. So you have to go, you have to lose the conceit that you know. Yeah. And that's why you collect data. And that's why you get as a social scientist, as you, I'm, a, I'm a qualitative social scientist, but you know, you want, you have to, you know, take things, as a whole and try to find out the best representation of reality that you can put forward while acknowledging the fact that you have a limited viewpoint. Mm -hmm. The problem is when you spend half your paper flogging your own individual, how you identify yourself and your pronoun <laughs> or whatever you're doing when nobody really cares, like get to the meat. It's like cut to the chase and get to the meat of it. And realize that, you know, it's, it's all knowledge is provisional, right? It's going to change yeah. over time and it's going to be, it's going to be different. And then just try to give people a fair shake. And then, because uh, the tough part is that when you're, when you're really involved with people and then you have to write about them, I struggle yeah. with a lot of stuff because some people can be real assholes and you're like, ah, you know, just telling the facts of this really makes this person come off yeah. as an asshole. So yeah. <laughs> what is my responsibility here? These are real people, right? Yeah. So what can I, you know, and so that is really the struggle of thinking about what the purpose of your writing and your research is, right? Is it more action-based? Is it more just informational and doc historical document, you know, documenting it? Are you making an argument? Are you trying to point out something that is a problem? Um, what, you know, what are you, what are you doing? right? What, what's the purpose of, um, what's your thesis for broadly, not just specifically, but broadly for what you're doing? Like I, my stuff is very, I mean, I'm an, I, I identify as an anarchist. I, I see myself as an anarcho, <laughs> I'm an anarcho pragmatist, right? And I dealt with that anarchist a lot. And so my view of things is highly critical and very much based on power and how you know the, the, that interaction because you can't not look at social movements protests and collective action without really taking a serious look at that mm -hmm. but i don't i'm not a, I'm, I'm not a critical theorist i'm not a um cultural studies person although the joke about of course you know the original cultural studies program that was founded in the uk by Stuart hall does not exist anymore mm. it's because everything is culture it's like the internet Everything is, it was the internet is everything, right? So it's like, well, can we really talk about it anymore? Exactly. Um, and cultural studies has been thoroughly baked into almost any field, right? And so you have to take that in. It's basically, we stole it from anthropology. And so, uh, yeah, it's yeah. baked in, but it's like a, it's like a facade. <laughs> it's like well, a gingerbread I mean, house of it. A lot a, of it. It's a, it's not a, a, 
uh, when I deal with it, even in this program, I'm like, yeah, but now I have to black explain everything to you that we're talking about as the only black student here in this program. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, I mean, Marquita was saying, she's like, I can't fix everything. I'm supposed to be the healer because <laughs> I'm the only, I'm the black person here speaking for black people, speaking for black women everywhere, I would have to say, you know, <laughs> and, the, and the whole point is that it's like people are trying, you know, white people mostly, People, they're, they're like trying so hard, but it's like, you know, you're trying so hard that you're actually popping out on the racism spectrum. You're kind of popping out on the other side of the racism spectrum because you're, you know, and then the whole idea of like, you have to kind of explain, you know, what that experience is, whether you're the immigrant experience or the, you know, the mm -hmm. black experience or whatever, you know, regardless of the fact that your black experience is similar to other black experience, but not the black experience, because you are actually, <laughs> and this is a problem with identity politics, right? And what I've always, I've argued since the nineties that identity politics is incredibly toxic because who really refined identity, identity politics, Nazis. So it's like, it really is something that is, is a trap and as much as it is emancipatory because it reduces you to something you have no control over. You, yeah. I had no control over being born white and male and straight. You had no control being black and male and or you have a white, I think you're, you're, you have marriage and kids. And so. Yeah, straight. <laughs> straight. Yeah, so, I mean, but it's like, uh, you know, I did not be like, hmm, am I going to be straight or gay? Let me think of, you know, it's not, and you know, it's supposed to be what about the, the content of your character, right? Exactly. And what you've done and being judged, just like, just judge me on what I do and what I say, not what I am. And identity politics is all about what you, what you are as the being defined by yourself or being defined by others. But the difference is to me is that, okay, are you living in somebody else's box or are you building your own box? I want out you know, of the box. My point know. is I want out of the box. I'm in this like box with a zoom box, right? I want yeah. out of the box. That's the point, right? You and everyone else, uh, you know, yeah. the last thing I'll say about this subject, and then we have one more question for you. The last thing I'll say is that I, had a professor this semester and I'm, I'm big into critical cultural, but I'm in the Stuart Hall book of thought, right? Yeah. I'm very much, I'm very much very straightforward and uh, academic and to the point. And I had to convince this professor, we were going back and forth that we we're talking about our kind of like our epistemology in the beginning of the semester. And I was trying to explain to her like why I write about what I want to write about, which, you know, is a lot about black imagery and media. Um, it's, it's intercultural in media and critical cultural, but mm -hmm. it's mostly from a black, I mean, I can't help but to write about what I know. This is what got me into love and calm. So I was trying to explain to her, she was like, but you know, you can't, she said that to me, you can't spend your whole career trying to explain things to white people. And I was like, no, 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 you don't get it. I don't care about explaining things to white people. That's not what my, I'm more about educating my own people so that they understand the power that mass media has and what imagery has. And a lot of kids don't understand that. I, I had to set that in her mind, like her brain couldn't understand what I was getting towards because that is what the narrative is. Like um, her as a, as a field, well, I'll leave her own name, as the field that she uh, uh, teaches in, white, explaining to white people, whatever your denomination is that doesn't fit the dominant culture is how she perceives it. And I was like, that's I'm not interested in that at all. <laughs> you got me wrong. <laughs> that's why, I mean, th that's the, the crux of it, right? Is that when people talk about, you know, it's like, 
it's not always about you. <laughs> it's not, I'm sorry. It's not always it's just like, well, white lives matter too. I'm like, you know, it's, it's not about you and don't, you know, it always, it's weird. It always like, it'll come back about, you know, white people or male people or man, black people lives or matter messed up, man. They should have just took all lives matter. Then what would they have had in return? There would have been no counter sir. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that's the whole idea. So it's yeah, not about that. Yeah, it's yeah. really what it, it all comes back. And, and the thing is with an academic, it tends to all come back to unless you take specific and the thing is honestly i spent when i was doing martial arts i was also hanging out with kadiri rafai sufis and Mm -hmm. doing sufic practice and you know so really got to know you know looked at the quran and was doing the whole thing zikr and the whole turning thing and and really involved in that and their attitude is i didn't have to be muslim to be involved in that but so you work on your own shit right and it's that idea that you polish the mirror of your heart to reflect the light of Allah upon the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's that idea of like, you know, of trying to, of getting out of you, you, you polish it to get the shit off of it because it's the idea of Allah is broadly not you. Right. So you don't have to really believe in like the guy or whatever, yeah, or yeah. even, even buy into that. Right. But it's that whole idea that, you are in your way, right? And as an academic, because we're so focused in the PhD program, you, the ego involved in having to focus on it, it, it cripples you. It emotionally and mentally cripples you as an academic. And so if you don't have any grounding in terms of how to get beyond that, it all comes back to you anyway, mm-hmm. right? And so like for me with students, I'm like, okay, you know, I you know, as a first generation college student and as someone I had to work to go to school. And, and so my point is that I don't start with me, I start with you. So I want to find a way to connect what I need to teach you with your lived experience, because otherwise you have no context to understand anything. I can't just throw stuff at you and, and hopefully it'll stick. And yeah, so that's kind of yeah. the point. And part of that is that I need to get out of my way to try and do that, right? and let people experience the discovery and get excited about knowledge. That's the problem is that being a student is a drag. I mean, they've made it, they've made it hellish to be a student. So students can't wait to get out of college instead of really understanding and taking that opportunity to think deeply about things that they haven't really thought about before. And so basically I want to open up the hood of the car and be like, Hey, this is the engine. This is how it works. You know? Yeah, exactly. I I have uh, gotten into many conversations with since I returned to academics and uh, figured out that I wanted to do it as a career path. I had to explain to many people like that the point of um, higher education has nothing to do with getting a job. I mean, unless you're going to go be an astrophysicist or something mm-hmm. like that, the rest of it is, uh, and even your GEs, I had to explain to someone that it just, the point of it is to open your brain up. It's to let you experience the world and give you a more rounded worldview that's elevated beyond what you got through K through 12. So the last question I'm going to ask is how's retirement going? What are you doing in retirement? You going to return to teaching? Uh, well, I teach, I actually teach one class still at the university of Louisville in Kentucky. Oh, um, okay. it's, it's a writing okay. class on global media and I've been teaching it for years just for like yeah, extra I saw, money. I saw that you've been, I saw you've been doing, is the money good? <laughs> and they pay better than San Jose State does actually. <laughs> a um, lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. 
but so it's just I, I'm just like keeping my hand in with it. It's a little bit hard having just one class out there, and I really miss like the the 181F, the the new media class, and yeah. And even though the 151I class was really a grind um, for me as well as students. Yeah. And then, of course, all the social movement stuff. I'm constantly looking at all the social movement stuff that's going on. I'm like, nobody. That's another thing. Nobody in the department's left. Anne Marie Todd. That's her area, but from a rhetorical perspective, which is mostly looking at what people say, not what people do. Um, yeah. But she's not teaching any classes because she's chair. So there's now there's nobody covering any of that, right? Really, the yeah, 179 class a little bit. I wonder who talked about the Reddit thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so basically, um, when I moved up here in 2016, they've got neighborhood associations mm-hmm. in in Oregon and in Eugene. So you have defi- like defined areas, and you have a board, and it is not like a homeowners association because it's all it's renters and homeowners and and businesses, anybody that's in your area or Jefferson West Side. And so you wrangle land use, you know, in terms of like, you know, land use hearings. And then you do, we like, we built a dog park and we do volunteer work at the park. And then we, uh, there's a wide variety of things. And one of the things, of course, right now is the impact of homelessness. And so uh, I got dragooned into eventually being chair of my neighborhood association. <laughs> and so it's, it's developing the media, right? So we have a, a yeah. monthly e-news, then we have um, biannual physical newsletters that go out because that's expensive. And, um, you know, we maintain the website. And so that has really been taking a lot of my time because the homelessness situation here is really intense because we're a fairly small, we're about uh, the metro, there's Springfield, which is right next door to us. Uh, You know, it's a little over 200,000 people. We're about 170, 180,000 people in Eugene. And we've got, you know, between four and 8,000 homeless people. Wow, that's a pretty high percent. And we've got a lot of really good uh, social service. I mean, you see like CAHOOTS, um, which is the um, outreach on the street. So basically if someone's having a mental health crisis or a bummer mm-hmm. trip or whatever, and you call 911, they'll send CAHOOTS instead of sending the cops. So yeah. to like, you know, just find out what's going on with you. And so we work, we work a lot with them. But the problem is, is that people, you can't have people living in the wild on the streets without sanitation and security. It destroys them um, because the skill set you need to do that and the skill set you need to integrate into society are different skill sets. Yeah. And the longer you're homeless, you kind of lose the ability to like function. You're mm-hmm. living in the jungle to function in the city. And so with people living in their cars and it's in neighborhoods and they're camping in open spaces, and then you have a, a, a subset within that population of criminal vagrancy and kind of lifestyle, what we call travelers or lifestylers, that they're willing to settle for, you know, just party, fuck, steal, and that's how they, you know, that's their life. And they're willing to settle for living in their van and trying to push the city to take responsibility for it, which is sanctioned yeah. camping. So that's the big, I've been spending most of my time doing that, of trying to, to mitigate the damage and then deal with uh, the political system here is screwed up. We have a weak part-time city council and a strong city manager. So basically the, the, the city's kind of run like a military by a military junta. And so that's what I've been spending a lot of my time on is trying to mitigate the damage and trying to force the city into sanctioned camping. It's like, you need places where people can go yeah. if they want help. And then you need to ban camping every place else to give everybody else relief. And there really is no other option other than that. 
So why are we spending all this money and tap dancing around on something that is not going to work because people need a place to go. And also it allows social services to get in contact with them if they know where you're going to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've been spending a lot of time on. Also, we've got uh, fruit trees on our property and I've got raised beds. And so we do like a ton of canning, you know, <laughs> growing food and stuff like that. Um, You're such a hipster. <laughs> used to be hippie, but now I'm a hipster, I guess. I have, Oh, I also, I infuse tequila. You, know? la la. you can send me yeah. a bottle. I'll yeah. take a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's been lovely, Ted, um, but I'm going to call this as the end to our interview. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for chatting. Uh, 